0: Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on a little something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Real bourbon. No apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Kentucky straight bourbon
1: whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Capri America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Before we get started, I just want to take a really quick moment to wish my co-host a very happy birthday. As those of you who follow us on social media know, I got Allie a rather unique gift. I don't think she has one. I hired a guy named Rapperman on Fiverr.com to compose a rap for Insight. So before we start the episode, I would like to share that rap with you. Happy birthday, Allie. Yeah.
0: Hey, yo, Allie, what's up? Insight. True crimes. That's right. Hey, check me out.
1: Yo, unsolved mysteries, forgotten history. What happened in the back alley? Charlie and Allie are trying to figure it out and not leave any doubts. And trying to make the other one have to pronounce crazy words like We're long gone Murder mysteries. Where did the body go? They on Skype, going live on the podcast. Insight. You know they both got that in the Women's True Crime podcast. This group down under to the U.S. and out to you. Historical finds live
0: on the air. And trying to run from the killer drop bears. Yeah, this is Insight, that's right, going live on Skype, doing it right, come on. Hi everyone, welcome to Insight. My name is Ali and with me as always is my co-host Charlie. How are you?
1: I'm good, how are you?
0: It's my birthday so I'm pretty good.
1: Well, happy birthday!
0: I'm not. I'm old, so it's not good. But it's a day to celebrate me, so that's that's always good.
1: You know, you're still younger than me, so making jokes about how old you are, I don't think is is going to play well <laughs> in our podcast.
0: So we'll move on to CrimeCon then. We are headed to the end of the year, so time is running out to get your early bird discount. You can get a further 20% discount by using the code INSIGHTFUL20. It is going to be a great experience, and so many podcasters are going to be there. Gen Y, Twisted Philly, Once Upon a Crime, Already Gone, and Us, of course – It's going to be a lot of fun, so head on over to CrimeCon.com and buy your tickets. So tonight, we are talking about a case that I actually hadn't heard of until it was suggested to us by Morgan, so thank you, Morgan. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of five-year-old Anna Christian Waters. Ready, Charlie? I'm ready. George Henry Waters married Michaela in 1964 in New York City while attending Columbia Medical School. George Michaela and Michaela's two children from a previous relationship, Nonda and Eddie, they moved to San Francisco for him to complete his residency. While they are living there, Anna is born September 25, 1967. Around the time of Anna's birth, George meets an older man, George Brody, which may or may not be his real name, but we'll get to that a bit later. Brody was an older man in his 60s at that time, and he immediately started to somewhat manipulate George. I've seen it quoted as a cult of personality. Due to George's relationship with Brody, and because of George's increasing paranoia, this all led to George and Michaela divorcing before Anna's first birthday. Although George was from a well-to-do family and was doing well both professionally and financially, he moved into a seedy hotel in a not-so-nice part of San Francisco with Brody as his roommate. And Brody, who it seems didn't have any money or source of income of his own, he was completely supported financially by George. George appeared to not make any decisions without the full approval of Brody. He would call Brody constantly during his work day, asking his opinion on menial chores like the dry cleaning or what he was going to have for lunch. And I should clarify that although these two adults were sharing a room with only one bed, there was never any evidence that their relationship was sexual. It appears Brody was more of a guru or an advisor type person. Brody showed a disturbing level of interest in Anna. He believed that Anna was the reincarnation of a woman that he had lived with for decades, named Margaret Kukoda. And this is despite the fact that this woman was still alive when Anna was born. At Brody's and George's insistence, Michaela agreed to let Anna's name be changed legally, adding the nonsense word IFI as an extra middle name. This was because Brody wanted Anna's and his name to match numerologically. Over the next few years, George's behavior became more irrational. He demanded money from his family, he complained to Michaela over having to pay child support, and he would send his friends, who quickly became former friends, he would send them letters that he would write using phrases that Brody had been known to say, and he would make these crazy accusations towards them. Because of all this strange behaviour, which was out of character for George prior to his relationship with Brodie, but he was ultimately diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. His family decided against having him committed, even though there were times where he would do things or make threats that showed he was a danger to himself and others. And they did that to try and allow him to keep his doctor's licence.
1: After George had left and... Michaela and George had divorced Michaela met a man named Joe Ford he was a friend of a friend and at the age of 27 he was ready to uproot his whole life from Oregon and move to the San Francisco area and sign up as the partner to Michaela and the dad to Michaela's three kids the boy's father was in Greece and Anna's father was off with his mentor all the time so Joe was the day-to-day father figure for all of them. And he was the only person Anna would have recognized as her father. And he later played a large role in the search for Anna and in trying to determine what really happened. So after Michaela and Joe partnered up, they pulled the older boys out of school when Anna was an older toddler. And they traveled the country while homeschooling for a little bit. But then they headed back to California, and they settled in Half Moon Bay, which is about a 45-minute drive south of San Francisco. The kids went back to school, and Anna started kindergarten at Hatch School. The boys went to school about seven miles away, and they all took the bus, with the bus pretty much picking them up at their doorstep. On September 16, 1972, the same month that Anna started kindergarten, Joe and Michaela got married, and they got married in the treehouse that he had built with the boys and it overlooked Parisima Creek. About a month before Anna's disappearance, possibly on a weekend, Anna was out walking the family dog Saturn, and she was with her brothers Nanda and Ed, and they were 14 and 11 at the time. The details of this story are not exact, and we'll get into why that is in a little bit. As Nanda remembered it, they were walking in Parisima Canyon, which is where they lived, and they were a quarter mile from their home. While walking, a four-door sedan pulled over a few yards ahead of them. Nanda, who was into cars, said he remembers the car being a late 1960s Impala and it was gold or possibly dark green and he thinks the license plate was the green and white washington state license plate but he isn't sure about this so there was a woman in her okay, <clears throat> a woman in her early to mid 30s with long dark hair and wearing a white loose fitting shirt started asking the kids questions from inside the car and she was in the passenger seat Nanda remembers feeling like the questions were directed to Anna specifically, though he was answering them for her. The back door of the car opened at some point in this conversation, and she offered either all of them or maybe just Anna a ride, but the kids were creeped out by this, and they said no, and they ran home. He remembers she was in the passenger seat, so it's possible there was another person in the back who opened the door, or she reached back and opened the door from the inside and pushed it open. So there was also a driver who he doesn't remember any details of. The woman closed the door and the car drove off in the opposite direction of their home. Okay, here's the tricky thing with this incident. No one recalled this happening when Anna disappeared and... Nanda didn't remember it. Ed didn't remember it. Nanda doesn't know if he told the parents or not. But regardless, they don't remember being told about it. This memory resurfaced three decades later. So this idea of repressed memories is really controversial. The idea behind this is that people, when facing a trauma like, say, a sister disappearing... They block out the memories in order to cope. The methods used to recall these memories have in many instances led to false memories being planted, but from what I read, it feels like Nanda recovered these memories just kind of on his own. I I didn't get the idea that he was hypnotized or went to a therapist for them. I'm not entirely sold on this memory being accurate or possibly significant, Because first, this memory requires that two people forgot it, both Nanda and Ed, and that's less likely than just one person forgetting it. And with what we currently understand about memory consolidation, which is that transfer from short-term memory into long-term storage, memories stick best when they're used or repeated or recalled often. So that this incident happened, and a month later when his sister was missing, he had already forgotten about it, makes me question whether or not his brain would have stored that in long-term memory when it was forgotten within a month. If the idea is that the trauma of losing his sister made him push it down, then you'd kind of wonder how it had even made it to long-term memory just in that short period of time. I'm kind of on the fence about how much stock I would put into the specific memory.
0: There's also the chance that he added to the memory. Someone may have pulled up and asked them directions or just asked general questions, being friendly. And with the trauma of the situation over time, Nonda has added to that memory.
1: It has been 30 years at that from when it happened till he remembered it. So that's that's true. He could have had a blueprint for that memory and he filled it in with, with just time. And that exactly. happens with our memories.
0: And the human mind's a tricky thing for him to remember all these small details after 30 years suddenly. It is quite questionable. On the morning of January 6 on the morning of January 16, 1973, it rained all morning. Joe left at about seven o'clock as usual to go to work as a carpenter and the children left on the bus to go to school about a half an hour later. Michaela was home for the day doing the housework and feeding the animals. At about 10 o'clock a neighbour was attacked by the family's rooster so a farmhand killed the rooster and threw it in the creek. This is something that is worth remembering for later. At 11am, some family friends visit from San Francisco with their new baby. Joe's job is cancelled because of the rain and he comes home to join the group for lunch. Arna gets home not long after on the school bus at about 1pm. She immediately changes into a striped shirt, red coat, jeans and her two big rubber boots and goes out into the yard to play. Both her mother and stepfather were inside the house at that time. About half an hour after that, Anna comes back inside and takes off her red coat. She goes back outside again, and Michaela hears Anna talking to the family's cats. So it's 2.15 now, and Michaela realises that she hasn't heard Anna for about 15 minutes and goes looking for her. She wasn't in the backyard with the dog, not out the front yard. A family friend sees Anna earlier at the front door when he came in, which made them think maybe she went up to get the mail out of the mailbox, but she isn't there either. She wasn't between the neighbors' homes visiting friends. Panic, of course, sets in. Michaela, Joe, and the neighbors search up and down the road and towards and around the creek. When they are searching the creek, a neighbor hears rustling in the woods near the creek, but she thinks it's just a deer and doesn't say anything until weeks later. So after about 45 minutes of searching, the San Mateo Sheriff Office is called, and they arrive about 15 minutes after that. As soon as they arrive, the deputy sounds the siren in the off chance Anna is lost and could follow the sound of the siren to help the searchers find her. Michaela is, her initial thought is that Anna may have fallen in the creek. Michaela thought that maybe Anna was upset that her favourite rooster had been killed and went looking for him. So as we know, a creek ran through the family's property and was at flooding levels in January of 1973. On this particular morning, it was reported that over eight inches of rain had fallen in the previous 24 hours. Because of that, all initial efforts were directed towards searching the creek. And this is an extensive search. Scuba divers searched for three days, the entire length of the creek, from when Anna would have walked up to it, till where it flows into the Pacific Ocean. They did find a sock but when they compared it to Anna's sock it was too big and not the same kind as she was wearing that day. Dogs were brought in the following morning but due to the heavy rains that day, the length of time and the fact that so many searchers had walked through the area and because of all that they couldn't really pick up on any scent. And after all these searches, no evidence was found that Anna did fall into that creek.
1: Yeah, they've described the creek between where the house is and the ocean as having a lot of places where she would have gotten caught if she was. The odds that she would have made it all the way to the end of the creek into the ocean are teeny tiny.
0: We'll get to it more in theories, but there is a lot of overgrowth as well, meaning it wasn't just an easy flow through to the ocean. And a family, and a friend visiting the family on the day of the disappearance reports several days later that he had passed a white panel truck on the road very close to where Anna and her family lived. In the van was a young man and an older man. Apparently they waved and acted suspiciously over-friendly. And it's important to note that at the time Anna vanished, Joe would have been in his 30s and Brody was in his 70s.
1: Yeah, there was some odd behavior from them. Well, that's an understatement in general. But speaking very specifically about Anna's disappearance, it's interesting to note that George never contacted Michaela, like never. He didn't call. He didn't go by and ask what happened He didn't see if he could do anything to help, which is what you would expect when your only child goes missing. Even without having a role in her life, you would think even a phone call would be expected. The only contact George had in regards to Anna's disappearance was a call to his attorney. After the news broke of Anna's disappearance, he called the attorney to find out what her disappearance meant to him... Which, in other words, he wanted to know if he could stop paying child support. George and Brody were investigated briefly. They both had alibis for the time Anna disappeared. George was working at the medical center, and Brody was at his regular hangout, which was a local cafe, and he was doing his usual routine of being God's gift to waitresses. And these routines they had rarely varied. The two of them did the same movements day in, day out for a decade. That said, shortly after Anna's disappearance, both George and Brody left for seven to ten days, and no one knows where they went. We're taking two people who hardly left their hotel room for more than a few hours at a time, yet they were gone for a week, week and a half. There were attempts to track any credit cards or bank statements, but there was nothing there that gave a clue to where they went.
0: Now in a case like this, it is natural for some suspicion to fall on the stepfather. But, is, but it is important to understand, as Charlie said earlier, Joe was actually one of the heroes in this story. He's the one who continued the scuba searches in the creek long after the sheriffs had quit. He personally trailed both George and Brody for months, even to the point where he rented the room next to theirs to see if they were doing anything suspicious. Joe considered Anna his daughter and he did everything possible trying to find her. So as I said, Joe followed George and Brody for months. He hired professional cameras and listening devices trying to find out if they were hiding Anna or if they knew where she was he rented the hotel room next to theirs. I read that he was doing something like 40 hours worth of recordings of them talking about mainly nothing in particular. Apparently Brody liked to boast to George when he got home from work about all the waitresses at his favourite cafe and how they were all in love with him. And this would go on into the night, with George generally only getting a couple of hours sleep, before he needed to go back to work the following day. And the level of paranoia escalated in their later years together. They would not even step out of their hotel room without immediately acting like they were undercover spies. They would double back without warning, make numerous turns into different directions for no reason. They would use several aliases in their day-to-day business. George rented hotel rooms as George Walters, for instance. Towards the end of Joe's amateur surveillance effort, he became impatient because he literally had nothing, so he sends George and Brodie a letter to George's workplace, and he pleads for them to tell him where Anna was, or to help them look for her. So when the letter arrives, there is unusual silence. Joe alleges he hears George say, I'm glad the tot is dead, and then the subject changes. Anna's name is never mentioned again. Can we read anything into this?
1: One of the things that I found interesting is in Michaela's book, she said that when they got George's items later on and they went through them looking for clues of Anna, they found this letter that Joe had written and he hadn't opened it, but it was torn in two. If George said it, I think think maybe he thought Anna was the, I I don't know that we can read very much into it especially since it doesn't appear he even read the letter
0: and it is possible that George and Brody knew that Joe was watching and listening to them he wasn't exactly being inconspicuous he was staying in the room next to them he had his car parked close by It was very likely that they saw him at some stage, especially with them acting strange and making strange turns in different directions. They may have been trying to throw him off their scent.
1: And we know George was a paranoid schizophrenic, so he may have thought anyone was listening in on him, maybe not even Joe. He may have just been paranoid.
0: And there's also a chance that they said that because it was an assumption, As I said, the police did favor the theory that Anna had fallen in the creek. And George wasn't your normal grieving father. By this stage, due to his mental state or whatever else, he didn't appear to have any emotional connection to Anna.
1: You know, that's a good point. That is in the papers, the contemporary news articles, the sheriff saying he thought Anna was in the creek. So it makes sense that that's what George would assume was the truth.
0: Yeah, so, I don't think it means anything at all, and that's if we're assuming that Joe heard it correctly. There is a chance that he did mishear it. So, Brody develops throat cancer and was treated by George, who, as we know, was a trained doctor. Brody dies on Christmas Eve, December 24, 1981, eight years after Anna's disappearance. His death certificate is the only official piece of paperwork that can be found regarding Brody. It doesn't show his date of birth. It doesn't list any known relatives.
1: I think it said something like he was 51 years old at the time of his death, which is obviously untrue. He was very clearly an elderly man.
0: He was easily in his late 70s, early 80s, by what I've heard. An inquiry by the San Francisco Public Administrator's Office listed his birth date as August 25, 1923, with the birthplace of Massachusetts. It was discovered that there were no employment records and no social security number. Brodie and George like to tell people that Brodie used to work in politics. The problem with all of this is that all of these facts came from Brodie and George. There was no solid evidence to back these claims up. And they went to great lengths to hide any information about themselves, which we will see after Brody dies, George goes into this frenzy. He destroys any paperwork or personal information that relates to him, Brody, or Anna. A few things he didn't destroy were documents that weren't accessible because they were kept in a safe deposit box that wasn't found or known about until the next chain of events. So we'll come back to that because there was one interesting note found. And by this time, George's mental condition had deteriorated to the point of random shouting matches to his colleagues, and he was regularly being reprimanded by his bosses because of questionable medical treatments and his poor work ethics. Shortly before Brody died, George lost his job at the medical centre because of his mental state. So about two weeks after Brodie dies, George kills himself by drinking poison while in his hotel room. And while his death certificate shows January 7, 1982, this is only speculation by the coroner because George's body was not discovered until about a week after his suicide. In George's safe deposit box, there was a note which is largely ineligible. It does state that there was a plan with four points and we'll leave links to that note on the Facebook group, but this plan has four steps. The first was to contact an unknown person over making final arrangements about something happening in January of 1973, which I'm not saying it's related, but this is when Anna disappeared. The second point was to apply for $100,000 and the initials ACE, which I'm going to say I think stands for Anna Christian Ify, because George did refer to Anna with these initials on child support checks. After that, there is a scribbled out word that could be beneficiary. The third point reads, three months late, negotiate, increase to five. Then an undecipherable word, and again the letters A-C-E. And the last point reads, three months later, change. Now have you seen this letter Charlie? What do you think?
1: I did see it and it definitely looks to me like a fairly known scheme that George and Brody were kind of doing where they would take out life insurance policies making Brody the beneficiary and it sounds to me like They were going to try to do it in two steps. They were going to put Anna as beneficiary on a new policy for George and then wait to change it. Now, if they were going to change it because Anna was going to disappear or if they were just doing it because Brody had so many life insurance policies as the beneficiary and they were just trying to find a way to not look suspicious. However, it all seems very odd because you would think with all these Life insurance policies that George would somehow predecease Brody, and it didn't happen that way, so it's really hard it's kind of like looking at the Lori Erica rough notes and trying to make sense out of them.
0: Very true because yeah George used to give Brody life insurance policies for birthday gifts, and it may have been the fact that maybe George had attempted to take out another life insurance policy with Brody as the beneficiary. And it was knocked back for the reason that there was just too many. So we tried to work around it that way by putting Arna down. And then, as you said, change it later on. But the interesting thing was that I found was that these weren't the kind of policies that are paid out regardless of the cause of death. These were accidental death policies only, which is strange on its own because it wasn't like George lived a risky lifestyle.
1: I wonder if accidental death policies are cheaper because they're less likely to have to pay out than comprehensive policies.
0: But then that's saying if had, he had all of these life insurance policies for accidental death. This is him saying that he's likely to have an accidental death,
1: or he or they were going to stage one. I, I don't know because it never happened. I mean, George did not predecease Brody, so who knows what they were planning.
0: They wouldn't have been thinking clearly. They may have not been a plan. It might have just been something they did.
1: There have been a number of Jane Doe's that have been considered that may have been Anna. In March of 2006, a partial skull was found at San Gregorio State Beach, which is 11 miles south of Half Moon Bay. It was determined that the skull... Did belong to a child between five and seven years old, but DNA tests showed that it was a boy. He is still unidentified. In March 1985, there was an unidentified teen girl found under plastic in Doniana County, New Mexico. She had not been dead for more than a few months. And her age would put her near what Anna's would be at that time, but it, it wasn't her. Later that same year, in November 1985, in Allegheny County, Virginia, skeletal remains were found. Due to decomposition, no description or age group could be determined. It's believed that she was at least 20, but less than 50, which is not exactly narrowing it down. A DNA test was run, but they didn't match. And then finally, in June 6, 2014, so not that long ago, in Newport News, Virginia, the mummified remains of a woman was found. Again, due to decomposition, there was virtually no description, and a very wide age range was all they had immediately. But they were able to actually get prints, DNA, and dental records, and they Using these three methods, they've ruled out over 2,000 missing people, including Anna. And then working on the theory that Anna may have been abducted and kept or adopted out, a few people have tried to match Anna to adoptees. While none of these have been Anna, one of these people has helped numerous adoptees find their birth parents in this process. So there is something good happening in this process.
0: Now, Anna's mother is still alive. Joe died, I think it was 1991, but he kept searching right up until Anna's death. And as Charlie has mentioned a few times, Anna's mother wrote this truly beautiful book that talks about what kind of child Anna was with all of these stories of before she went missing. It's just a real heartbreaker. And I do strongly recommend that if you are a reader to definitely go and buy the book. I think it was only, was less than $10, but it's definitely worth the read. It's only a short book, easy to read, but it's just a heartbreaking story.
1: She also used a lot of her journal entries and news reports from the time and telegrams they received during that time. So it really gives you a very moment-to-moment perspective of what they went through in the days after Anna had disappeared and the months and even the years and something that was interesting is she got a telegram from George's mom about Anna's disappearance and someone else had contacted her about it so at that point George wasn't even telling his parents about his daughter's disappearance. They were hearing about it from one of Michaela's friends.
0: And there are beautiful pictures in there of Anna, very candid ones, and drawings that she used to draw for Michaela. It's easy to forget sometimes that these missing people had lives before they disappeared and were and, uh, and were and are still very loved. Anna's mother talks in the book how she prepared herself for Anna no longer being alive. And then you get all of these false hopes and false leads. I don't know how a parent of a missing child does it. Their strength is incredible. So are you ready to go into theories? Yes. So the first theory is, was Anna taken by the couple in the car that spoke to Anna and her brothers the month before she disappeared? The significance of this event can't be overstated. This means that one month before Anna disappears, apparently a couple attempts to get at least Anna in their car. If this story is true, it's not far-fetched to assume that they returned at a later time and successfully abducted Anna and she was taken by the family to raise her as their daughter. What immediately struck me as odd about Nanda's story is why would the couple initially approach Anna while she was with her two significantly older brothers.
1: I agree I already question the memory aspect and the recall aspect of this but the story even if it did happen that someone was approaching Anna with her brothers in an attempt to get her in the car doesn't make a lot of sense it would make more sense that they would have waited until she was separated from them
0: I mean, it is possible the couple was attempting to gain Anna's trust by talking to her around her brothers, who she would have obviously trusted, but yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me either.
1: And that would have left two witnesses that could describe what you looked like and what your car looked like.
0: Also, there would be no way the abductor or abductors would have known that Anna would be outside and accessible at that exact time especially when the window would have been so small. Now, the road where Anna lived is not a major road, and unless you live in the area, you really have no reason to drive on it. The abductor would have to be waiting nearby, waiting for the opportunity. It seems less likely the couple with the car randomly came back a month later, and it just so happened to be the exact same time Anna happened to be outside alone. At the bare minimum, they would have had to be sitting outside and waiting in close view of Anna's home, which you would imagine would have raised some suspicion, especially if they had out-of-state licence plates. Now there is a chance Anna was abducted by someone else entirely. Again, this is unlikely for all the reasons we've already discussed. But there has been a couple of similar abductions in the years following Anna's disappearance. On September 11, 1974, four-year-old Sonia Johnson was reported missing from her San Jose home. She was later found in a ravine five miles from her home. She had been killed by a blow to the head and it was suspected she may have also been smothered or strangled. And two weeks later, on September 25, 1974, in Fremont, California, which is about 38 miles from Half Moon Bay, six-year-old Julie McMillan was taken while playing outside her home. Thankfully, in Julie's case, she was found later walking along Lexington Reservoir. She was taken to the local hospital and again, so thankfully, was Julie wasn't injured in any way. Julie tells the police she got into a green convertible with a man named Ted, and she got into the car because he promised to show her some rabbits. And again, we go back to the green car. Could that be related to the green car that Nanda store?
1: And this was a green convertible, which Nanda didn't specify, and I think he would have if that's what it was, but, you know, it's possible.
0: It's unlikely, but... I guess it's possible
1: yeah it's kind of hard because I think it's unlikely this was a stranger abduction and I think it's unlikely Nanda's memory is accurate so it's hard for me to say between these two unlikely things if I think they're unlikely connected so it's just I'm kind of at an impasse with this one Whenever a child goes missing, the parents are automatic suspects and a non-custodial parent who never bothers to contact the police or the ex-wife about the missing child and lives with a bizarre old man, that definitely rises to the top of the list. There are a few theories within the George's Did It theory. So here are my two theories about the Georges if we're working under the idea that they were involved. The first theory is that Anna, who Brody believed was the reincarnation of his friend Margaret, was taken to give her to a more worthy family to raise appropriately. While George and Brody are characterized as living together, they had two rooms within that hotel. They were often seen staying in the same room, so it's unclear why they had that second room. At one point, Brody had yet another room at another hotel a few blocks away. However, it wasn't until well after Anna disappeared that it was discovered that they had these spare rooms. It's possible they had all three rooms at the time, or it's possible they only had two. So could one of these spare rooms been used by this new worthy family before and then just after the abduction? If we're going to go down this route, it's possible that they would use one of these rooms to keep Anna close to George in case they needed him to keep her calm until she was familiar with her abductors.
0: I don't see that being what happened because Anna would have no idea who George was. If the strange man walked in and said, it's okay, I'm your father... She would have freaked out, because as far as she's concerned, Joe is her father.
1: As I don't think she would have, like, immediately gone to him or even been necessarily comforted by his presence, because like you said, she had no idea who he was. Unless he had told her that something had happened to her mom and Joe and her brothers, and that he was going to take care of her, she she may have been manipulated into... In an emotionally fragile state, into trusting him just because he was there and appeared somewhat
0: trustworthy. I mean, his go-
1: mentor was an expert at manipulation, so maybe he learned it from him.
0: And going back to the two or three rooms, George obviously was very tight with his money, living in a seedy part of town, not wanting to give child support to his child. It seems unlikely to me he would have these extra room or rooms for no particular reason. Could it be the reason to keep up this ruse that him and Brody weren't living together? That could be a possibility. Who knows?
1: And child support actually has to do with my other theory about the Georges. So we know Brody was using George and George's family and friends for money, And the level of devotion that George showed Brody was frightening. With schizophrenia, a person will generally have delusions, and these delusions often take on a theme. And George had clear delusions of persecution, but there are also hints he had religious delusions with Brody cast in this guru or godlike position. At one point, he told Michaela that Brody was more gifted than Jesus, And he would spend hours keeping Michaela up all night, spouting off about free will and God. He would want Michaela to sign statements, admitting to and renouncing all of her transgressions, and these statements were often drafted by Brody. There was an exchange of letters between George and Brody before they moved in together, where George asks Brody for permission to emulate him. Brody responded in his letters that he was pleased with the request and that George could now give Brody gifts as a sign of this devotion. And George systematically drove away every friend and family member by writing letters to them that were, like Allie said, most likely dictated by Brody, and many of them included the request for large amounts of money, like ten, twenty thousand $20,000 in some of those letters. With this level of devotion and this demand for increasing amounts of money, it certainly couldn't have been Brody's favorite thing to see $300 per month in alimony and child support leave George's wallet. The child support portion was $175 of that, and that's the equivalent to about $1,000 a month today in today's money. So imagine $1,000 a month going out of your you know, the guy who's supposed to be paying all your bills. So the idea is that instead of taking her to give her to a more worthy family, they took her to get out from under the child support requirement.
0: And all that sounds a bit strange to me because if Brody was so obsessed with Anna wanting to change her middle name, which I never understood why Michaela ever agreed to that. I couldn't find it anywhere. Maybe it was just to sort of shut them up and leave her alone. But I don't know why Brody would be so wanting to keep, we don't know, but wanting to keep George away from Anna and not have a relationship with Anna if he was that obsessed and wanted their names to match numerologically.
1: I actually wonder if George changed the name without Michaela's permission if he forged her signature or if the laws at the time allowed him to go and change her name so I wonder if there was some kind of sneakiness going on but also she was trying to keep her marriage together so she may have been agreeing to things like you said to kind of shut him up and make him happy for five minutes I wonder if Brody wasn't actually obsessed with Anna so much as he saw that as a means of controlling George and testing George's devotion to him and that the relationship with Anna actually meant nothing to Brody and that connection meant nothing to him other than it was a way to manipulate George.
0: That's a good point. I didn't think of it that way. And then by him saying, well, look, Anna's and my names match. She's the reincarnation of this woman that was important in my life. That would kind of bring him into this weird cult that Brody had going.
1: With everything that I have read and that's been reported, it really does sound like George was severely mentally ill. However, with Brody, I wonder... How much was mental illness, and how much was he was just a con man, you know, a cult leader, guru type?
0: Chicken egg me here. Was George mentally ill bef- before Brody, and was it was somehow it didn't surface, or did there his relationship with Brody bring up these this mental illness?
1: I probably shouldn't say this because I'm not entirely, I can't remember where I read it, but even if I didn't read it and it's just my brain making stuff up, (laughs) if George began using hallucinogenics like LSD and he was already predisposed to a mental condition like schizophrenia, he could have triggered it with drug use. And perhaps those drugs came from Brody. And perhaps that's how Brody also controlled him.
0: I think I read on Web Sleuth, which Michaela, is an active participant in the forums. Someone did ask her about George and drug use, and she was adamant that George would not touch drugs. However, she didn't have that relationship once George and Brody started living together, and he got heavily manipulated by Brody. Who knows what George was capable of by that stage?
1: And Brody would give George these weird treatments that he was supposed to do at one point. He was supposed to do an enema that Michaela was going to help him with and it's a whole story in the book but if Brody was giving him something and saying take this it's fish oil it's good for you George may not have known he was taking drugs.
0: Which again is strange since, since George is a doctor you think he would have questioned that but with a rapidly increasing mental illness he may have not thought to question it. And he, he trusted he trusted Brody, so why would he question it?
1: Brody doesn't exactly come across as mentally stable, so I'm not saying he also didn't suffer from some type of mental illness. It's just there's a couple of ways to look at this.
0: I'd be very surprised if Brody wasn't didn't have a mental illness, but he was highly intelligent with what he was capable of.
1: Absolutely, and to be honest, I I don't know if the Georges were involved if Brody and George Waters were involved. They had motive they acted oddly shortly afterwards but they acted oddly all the time I don't know
0: i just like to believe that he wouldn't have killed her at the end of the day he was her father
1: that maybe he would have given her away to another family that would be the the best
0: outcome. So as I mentioned before, earlier on the day Anna disappeared, a farmhand killed a rooster that Anna was fond of and he threw it in the creek. Apparently Anna was upset at the news. It was possible that Anna might have gone for a walk on her own to the creek to search for this rooster. And they did find the rooster in the creek. If a five pound rooster couldn't make it through to the ocean, then a much larger 40 pound girl it would be even more unlikely that she would have gotten into the ocean. And the search turned up numerous animal carcasses in the stream, but still no Anna. Local fishermen who patrolled the ocean near the mouth of the creek, they never spied a body either. And a hydrolysis familiar with the creek stated that a body would have most likely washed up onto the bank by some stage. Also, Anna's boots should have been found if she fell into the creek. Remember, they were too big for her and they should have fallen off. Or, I did do some research here, but her boots would have served as an anchor. Now, just a warning, because I'm going to get a bit graphic here, so listener discretion for the next couple of minutes. Okay, so let's just say Anna falls into the creek with her oversized rubber boots on. They would have filled with water and dragged her down to the bottom and most likely got stuck in the mud at the bottom of the creek. It would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for Anna to have pulled her feet out of these boots. They would have anchored her and held her in place until the point where she would have been found by searchers. I've spent some time on farms and in wetlands and if you get stuck in the mud it's very hard to get out and I'm an adult. And this is mud only, without water working against you as well. So unless Anna surfaces somewhere else, no one can be 100% sure, I guess, that she didn't go into the creek. And from what I've read, there are areas of the creek that are completely covered with overgrowth. So she may be stuck under there somewhere.
1: I read that... After the floodwaters receded and the creek got pretty low, they did additional searches and they didn't find anything. And I would have expected even just a sign of something. I really don't think she went in that creek. I it It would be against all odds if she was in that creek. And it's been searched, I don't know how many times in the last, you know, 40 years that they wouldn't have found something, especially when the creek was really
0: low. Also near the creek, there are heavily wooded areas that run alongside it. It is possible she went wandering in there, became lost, and just wasn't found by any of the searchers. It took the police 45 minutes to get there, and they only searched in a one-mile radius. So it is possible in that time frame that she went further in than that. And I can imagine Anna walking alongside the creek, searching for the rooster, and then turning around and not recognising where she was. Then she tries to find her way back home, and then gets lost outside the area that was searched. I think that's a real possibility, especially considering the area doesn't get a lot of heavy foot traffic. The neighbour that was helping with the search at the time where Anna went missing, she did hear a sound in the woods. Was that Anna? Possibly not. It most likely was just a deer. But we probably will never know. Okay, so Charlie, what do you think the most likely scenario is here?
1: I feel like a cop out all the time because I always don't know. (laughs) See, this is why mysteries are interesting to me is because I can never figure them out. I think if she went to the mailbox and was abducted by an opportunistic stranger. If she lived in a area where the more people went down that street, I would probably lean towards that. But it this case, of course, reminds me of the William Tyrrell case where she's near the woods. She's far out of the way. There are family complications. There's just layers to the story that are similar. And I don't know about that one either, so I guess it's only fair that I don't know about this one.
0: I just think out of all the other missing people that we have done or will do in the future, I think it's a real possibility that Anna is still alive. I think she may have been taken either by someone that George and Brodie had organized or a childless couple, and then raised as their own child. And I mean, she was only five. They could have spun her a story where her family had died, as you said, Charlie. And over time, she would have just forgotten who she was. And really, this is the best case scenario here.
1: Yeah, I, I agree that the best case scenario, and I think if she was taken and lived and grew up, it would have been by the Georges. They would have been somehow involved in disappearing her, whether through their idea that she needed a better home or their desire to get out of child support or some combination of the two. Or they could have
0: sold her to get more money. Brody was heavily influenced by money.
1: Right. So there are possibilities that do lead to her being alive as an adult. And that's, that's interesting because, like you said, so few of the missing person stories that we cover have that as a reasonable and logical solution. This case, I mean, she really could be out there.
0: So you can contact us via email at insightfulpod at gmail.com, Instagram at insightpod and Twitter at insightfulpod. We are also on Facebook, like the page and follow the group. It's a closed group, but send us a request and one of us will accept it pretty quickly. On our website, you can listen to all our episodes and check out some of our research. And if you are able and want to support the show, you can find the links to our Patreon account for an ongoing monthly donation and our PayPal account for a one-off donation and also our merchandise shop. And most importantly, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps bring people to the show and keeps us doing what we do. So until next week, bye, everyone.
1: Bye, guys.